the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. And live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word, our neighbors to the north. Uh, we just hanging out together for the next several days. So glad to have you with us. Today we're going to have a conversation on this National Cookie Day with Lois Howe. She knows all about cookies and why this is National Cookie Day, and it's a great excuse to do some baking or to eat cookies that you otherwise uh, might not. So she'll be joining us. We're also going to share our interview of the week with John Chastine, Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurt. So that's all coming up today on Live from Seattle and the Georgine Rice Show. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. President Trump, uh, the camp, is pointing to Nevada, claiming that there's evidence of double votes and dead people's names on ballots. Well, the Trump 2020 campaign has filed a lawsuit in Nevada telling a judge it has evidence that the names of deceased people appeared on ballots in last month's election and more than 42,000 instances of double votes. Well, the president lost Nevada to Democrat Joe Biden, 33,596 votes with the state's final tally certified last week by both its Supreme Court and Democratic Governor Steve Sisolak, essentially securing the state's six electoral college votes for Biden. Well, the Trump campaign attorney, Jesse Benal, he told the Nevada District Court Judge James Russell that 1,500 votes received in the general election came from deceased voters. That's according to the Las Vegas uh, uh, television station. And he also alleged that 42,284 votes cast ballots twice. Roughly 20,000 did so uh, without a Nevada mailing address and 2,400 had changed their address to one In another state. Well, just prior to the Thursday hearing, the Nevada GOP posted a video on Twitter of 20 binders they said contained evidence supporting their claims. We have testimony from multiple witnesses reporting that the USB drives used in the election would show that vote tallies changed overnight, the group said on Twitter. That means in the dead of night, votes would appear to disappear or disappear on these voting machines during early voting on election day. So it continues until the certification of the election, which is coming up uh, rather quickly. In other developments, Miranda Devine calls the Nevada 2020 presidential election review good news. Matt Schlapp says that Nevada is allowing the the Trump team to present its election fraud case is a great step. Meanwhile, a Nevada poll worker claims that she witnessed blatant voter fraud. Another Nevada election worker alleges voting irregularities. The uh, Trump campaign has submitted an affidavit to the Department of Justice. Well, Sean Hannity devoted part of his opening on Hannity and his monologue on Thursday to a discussion of new election fraud allegations stemming from videotapes from Georgia and Nevada. In, uh, In the Georgia case, the host said surveillance video of a canvassing center showed poll watchers being ushered out of the room after being told the court would be paused for the night. Then a woman in blonde braids stepped over a table and pulled out a pair of suitcases from underneath. Witnesses testified, backed up by the newly released surveillance footage, that shortly after observers were asked to leave the room, several large mysterious suitcases, yeah, they believe filled with ballots, were rolled out from under a table. 
Hannity said another video taken near Sparks, Nevada, shows people in pro-Biden attire offering Visa gift cards, jewelry and other swag to Native Americans at the Reno Sparks colony who could show they voted. Well, Purdue um, is fronting a positive outlook on the Georgia Senate runoffs, saying voters see value of a split government. And Georgia's Governor Kemp is claiming the GOP Secretary of State has yet to order a signature audit, which he uh, has called for. Former Georgia GOP leaders are worried that Republican voters won't turn out because of electoral fraud, uh, fraud claims. And the Georgia Secretary of State slammed the dysfunction in the Fulton County recount. It is a mess, even though it might ultimately be certified without these issues being resolved. The Los Angeles County Sheriff says deputies won't enforce Governor Newsom's latest coronavirus orders. Well, under Newsom's order, many businesses and activities would be forced to shut down for at least three weeks if capacity rates at intensive care units in several regions continue to rise. The Bay Area, Northern California, the greater Sacramento region, the San Joaquin Valley and Southern California, if they dip below 15 percent. Well, the new rules would be implemented within 48 hours of hitting that level. The bottom line is, Newsom says, if we don't act now, our hospital system will be overwhelmed. Reportedly, hospital systems are already overwhelmed with fewer than 2,000 ICU beds available statewide. To date, about 8,500 people have been hospitalized due to the virus, including more than 2,000 in ICUs. Well, Governor Newsom has warned the new lockdowns are coming because of the uptick and presumed president-elect Biden will call for 100 days of masks after the inauguration, he announced. And a judge has ruled that L.A. County, they have to show cause before banning outdoor dining. Well, the West Virginia police officer who was shot in the face has died after being pulled off of life support. Her organs have been donated. And Maxine Waters' campaign paid her daughter some $240,000 over the 2019-2020 election cycle, according to the FEC. And CNN's Jake Tapper and Don Lemon, they're gushing over a Biden interview, saying he said a lot of the right answers. The right answers, they said. Well, Trump has doubled down on a defense bill veto uh, threat over Section 230. And a CNN boss ripped Rudy Giuliani as a useful idiot for pushing a Hunter Biden disinformation campaign. A pilot has pulled off a textbook emergency landing on a Minnesota highway. Well, the latest jobs report shows how much the pandemic is squeezing hiring. And President Trump has unveiled a $207 million fundraising haul after the the election in his effort to overturn the results. Well, IBM discovered a COVID-19 global espionage campaign. Apparently, coronavirus vaccines are liquid gold to organized crime, according to Interpol. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice has accused Facebook of discriminating against American workers by giving high-paying jobs to H-1B visa holders. Georgia Governor Kemp is calling for signature audit at the state's um, election results. That is yet to begin after seeing more troubling uh, into um, information rather coming out of the committee hearing. Governor Brian Kemp explained, especially what the, what we saw today. I raise more questions. There needs to be transparency on that. I would again call for that. And I think in the next 24 hours, hopefully uh, we see a lot more from the hearings that the legislature had today and we'll be able to look and see what the next steps are. Senator Lindsey Graham encouraged Kemp to change the law so that the Senate races are not stolen from us. Meanwhile, from another story in Linwood, amid party fears that the MAGA boycott could cost them control of the U.S. Senate, Trump privately spoke by phone this week 
with Wood to tell him to knock it off, a source briefed on the discussion told Politico. Well, in a puzzling quote, Biden says, if Kamala and I disagree, I'll get a disease and resign. It was apparently supposed to be a joke, but nobody laughed, including Biden. Well, the exact quote from the video, like I told Barack, if I reach something where there's a fundamental disagreement we have based on a moral principle, I'll, 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 I'll develop some disease and say I have to resign. Well, a simple response from Byron York sums up what most people are thinking. This is rather odd. A celebrity chef in California has vowed to defy the governor. Chef Andrew Gruel says there is zero scientific evidence that proves that outdoor dining is contributing to the rise in cases related to this. All right. I'm only saying that we're going to continue dining outdoors because I can get on an airplane and I can fly and eat and do whatever I want. And don't tell me if it's uh, the HEPA filters. okay? because that's not the case. You don't turn those on until you get onto the plane. Well, nearly half the businesses in Washington, D.C. have closed. Meanwhile, the mayor of Los Angeles has banned unnecessary walking but gave the okay to protesting. So apparently you can't even walk in Los Angeles. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm also sitting in for Live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to, well, Louise Howe. Today is National Cookie Day. We'll find out why and how we can celebrate. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and Live from Seattle. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Also, we're sitting in for Live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. Well, you may not have heard, but today, December 4th, is National Cookie Day. It doesn't matter that it's 2020. It doesn't matter that we're uh, living under a pandemic. Today is National Cookie Day. Let the people rejoice. Well, here to talk with us about that is Louise Howe. She is with the uh, No Bake Cookie Company. That's a pretty good gig to talk with us about National Cookie Day and how we might celebrate. Louise, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. And yeah, you're right. It is a pretty good gig. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask let me ask you about that gig that you have as the uh, No Bake Cookie Company representative. What does that entail? So basically, I get to talk to people like you every day, all day, about uh, our our company, our story, the people behind the brand, and um, something that we're really passionate about, which is just really good food and food that makes you feel good. Do you get to eat cookies along the way? <laughs> of course, you know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I mentioned earlier, today is National Cookie Day. Uh, let's go back to the origin of, of National Cookie Day. How did this start? I love the idea of it. I'm sorry I didn't think of it, but how did we get a National Cookie Day? So National Cookie Day is one of those fun foodie holidays that just kind of came to be. So it feels like every day now has some kind of food holiday attached to <laughs> yeah. it. But <laughs> I guess why not, right? I mean, so this fun kind of lighthearted foodie holiday is just, we, we feel like it's especially important this year uh, for obvious reasons, just to bring a little bit more levity to everyone's world. And um, so we're really excited to celebrate today. Absolutely. So how do you recommend we celebrate National Cookie Day? Now, that's a loaded question, <laughs> but let me <laughs> let me ask it anyway. <laughs> how should we celebrate? So, <laughs> there are a few ways that we're, we're celebrating Um So for me, I I have lots of friends and family that are um, near and far. And so what we're really doing is we've charged each other with uh, using food as sort of a way to communicate our love and our care for one another. So 
uh, I would recommend considering some care packages for the, for those that you love, especially families that might have kids that went back to school. Um, this is an easy way to make them feel really well cared for with something that is um, pretty much across the board guaranteed to bring everyone a little bit of um, comfort and nostalgia and some of those good memories. Yeah, yeah. Now we're talking bar cookies and drop cookies and filled cookies and molded cookies, no-bake cookies, pressed cookies, refrigerator cookies, rolled cookies, sandwich cookies, cookies of every description. Now you are representing no-bake cookies. How do you have a cookie that doesn't require baking, which is an intriguing idea for those who don't really have uh, much experience in baking? Yeah, exactly, right? So uh, it's funny because we talk to to people all across the the country about the No-Bake Cookie Company, and um, for some, they grew up with no-bake cookies in the kitchen. Maybe it's very commonplace. Like if you asked me, I would say, of course, I grew up with no-bake cookies. I made them with my mom, with my grandma. Um, But for others, they're sort of a a little bit of a newer concept. So um, they're really a little bit more like fudge with rolled oats mixed in. So you have kind of a chewy, uh, dense, really, really rich, really delicious texture. Now, I've never had that, so this would be new to me. If our listeners are interested in no-bake cookies, maybe they just aren't into, you know, turning the oven on, um, how, do they, how do they learn more? Or is there a recipe? What do you suggest? I would recommend going to the nobakecookieco.com, and we also are across social media. And you can find us locally at Albertsons, Whole Foods, TJ Maxx, all those kind of great stores. And um, I, I would recommend um, looking for not only – um, not only our cookies, but your food uh, nowadays, especially look for the third-party certification. So we're really proud of the fact that we're certified gluten-free. We're non-GMO. Uh, when you look at the ingredients on the back, we're 100% clean. So that's really where you want to start, and that's where you want to start um, looking. Well, there you go. You've just given us a reason to eat cookies that are actually good for us. And for those who might be on a diet, they're anticipating holiday eating. uh, This is an excuse on National Cookie Day. We all have permission to indulge in a cookie or two or, for that matter, a dozen or two. (laughs) Well, Louise, uh, happy National Cookie Day. And thank you for helping us all consider how we might celebrate. Yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) National Cookie Day. uh, By the way, it comes up on December 4th. It serves up as a pretty sweet treat. Let me give you a little bit of history of this this whole thing. The English word cookie is derived from the Dutch word cookie. (laughs) Sounds much the same, which means little cake. Uh, Hard cookie-like wafers have existed for as long as baking has been documented. Uh, They travel well, and we all know that by now. They were unusually... um, not sweet. Now, today, cookies are fairly sweet, but they were not sweet, uh, as sweet as they are now early on. Not sweet enough to um, uh, meet with modern-day standards. Well, the origin of the cookie appears to begin in Persia in the 7th century, soon after the use of sugar became common in the region. Can we just take a moment and celebrate the origin of and founding and use of sugar? Just, just take a moment and rejoice. Anyway, it spread to Europe through the Muslim conquest of Spain. Uh, it's common at all levels of society. It doesn't matter if you are rich or poor throughout the 14th century, from the royal cuisine to the street vendors. Cookies arrived here in the United States in the 17th century. Macaroons and gingerbread cooker- cookies were among the more popular early American cookies. Love gingerbread and macaroons, two of my all-time favorites. Well, in most English-speaking countries outside of North America, the most common word for cookie is Biscuit. I'm always amused when I'm watching a program from the UK and they refer to biscuits. They're really talking about 
cookies. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are bar cookies and dropped cookies. There are filled cookies, molded, pressed cookies, no-bake cookies, refrigerator cookies, rolled cookies, sandwich, all kinds of cookies to meet um, everyone's taste. Now, how did this whole National Cookie Day begin? Well, in 1976, Sesame Street included National Cookie Day on their calendar for the first time on the 26th of November. Well, today is December the 4th, so you might be scratching your heads. Well, the uh, Cookie Monster also proclaimed his own National Cookie Day in his book in 1980, The Sesame Street Dictionary. Well, then, in 1987, Matt Nader of the Blue Chip Cookie Company out of San Francisco created Cookie Day out of whole cloth, apparently, celebrating it on December the 4th. Someone just gets a hair and decides we're going to have a national day And that's pretty much how it started. Now it's a national cookie day. So this is an opportunity for you to have an excuse to bake cookies or to uh, purchase cookies or to just indulge yourself in eating them because it is officially national cookie day. I've been thinking about what my favorite cookie might be. And I have to say it might be gingerbread. It might be macaroon, the two that were most popular early on in the U.S. But it's really hard to pin down a particular cookie. So I'm just going to have to leave that open. But I promise you that I'm not going to let the day come to an end without celebrating National Cookie Day. Maybe doing a little baking as well. Well, here on the Georgine Rice Show, we tend to take Friday to take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. And so that is uh, what we are going to do for the remainder of uh, the next couple of segments. Then we're also going to share our uh, interview of the week with John Chastine, Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. Great interview. If you didn't have an opportunity to hear it earlier in the week, we'd encourage you to hang around for that. Uh, So that's coming up on the program as well. James Blend, who is the producer of The Georgine Rice Show, will join me for those two segments of the program. So look forward to having a conversation with him. So there you have it, National Cookie Day. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Also sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. Hey, we'll be back in a few minutes. The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. I'm Georgine Rice sitting in KGNW 820 The Word for the next few days. So glad to have you along with us. Coming up later this um, next hour, we're going to hear from John Chastine. Half the Battle is the title of the book, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. That's in the five o'clock hour. Well, we mentioned just before the uh, break that today is National Cookie Day. And this just in, one in five Americans suffer from cookie addiction. There's been a 25% rise in demand for cookies during COVID. One in five, that's the amount of uh, Americans who eat more than three cookies per day on average. One in five. I should say that's the number of Americans rather than the amount. A 95%, that's the percentage of Americans who eat a cookie every day. So that's a pretty big number. Well, with National Cookie Day uh, here, we they uh, delved into America's love or maybe obsession with the humble cookie. Uh, American uh, has been uh, caught in, uh, (laughs) rather caught with its hand in the jar, uh, with a study revealing that almost one in five Americans are devouring, on average, more than three cookies per day. Now, what about favorite cookies? I mentioned earlier that it's really hard to pin that down, but uh, digging a bit deeper, there was a survey that discovered uh, that Maine loves the chocolate chip cookie more than any other state, that Alaska 
they're ranking top for sugar cookies, and Oklahoma's craving for peanut butter cookies more than anywhere else. So let's uh, let's take a look. Chocolate chip cookies, Maine, Alaska, South Dakota, Iowa. That's the lineup. Snickerdoodles, Oregon is at the top of the list. Washington at number three, with Alaska, Idaho, and Maryland also on that list. The oatmeal cookie is favored most in Vermont, Maine, Idaho, Connecticut, and North Dakota. The shortbread. Mm. Hawaii, Vermont, Alaska, and at four and five, Oregon and Washington. Then the peanut butter cookie, Oklahoma, Montana, West Virginia, North Dakota, Michigan, and wafer cookies. It's kind of a a marvel to me, the wafer cookie. Delaware, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Arkansas, Massachusetts. And then the macaroon, one of my favorites, Delaware, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Arkansas, and Massachusetts. So if you're looking for a good cookie in the states of Oregon and Washington, the snickerdoodle and the shortbread are at the top of the list. So there you have it, National Cookie Day. Well, on Fridays, we take a look at the lighter side of the news, you may have noticed. And James Blend, who is the producer of The Georgine Rice Show, oftentimes joins me in doing just that. So I invite him to join me right now. Yo, James, how you doing? Doing all right. Uh, you know, just uh, fresh off my research for the cookie topic for you. You know, at least a couple bags of research were necessary, of course. So, <laughs> a couple of bags. I feel, I feel it pretty good. I, I, you know, the one thing I'll say though, over the years, I've learned to moderate a bit. It wasn't too many bags. It wasn't like our egregious donut incident a few years ago where we both ate so many donuts we didn't want them for weeks or months on end. <laughs> but we had to test the product. We had to test the product, and we are broadcast professionals in the vaguest sense of the term. Uh, but <laughs> the uh, emphasis on broad after exact, that experiment. <laughs> and, and the, you know, the, I, if there's one thing I don't ever want to be sick of or not want, it's a cookie. So I, I had to be... Uh, very measured in my scientific research. So, uh, you know, just a couple bags, that was enough. There you go. You know, mom and dad actually had some sense when they said, no, you can't have more cookies. There was a reason behind that. So thank you, mom. Thank you, dad, for imposing that moderation that I have so much trouble trying to uh, duplicate now. Well, taking a look at the lighter side of the news, Jimmy Fallon, who, of course, is a comedian, wants to ruin a Christmas song by adding one word, uh, and he challenged people to do just that. People responded with Rudolph Giuliani, the red-nosed reindeer, um, Carol Baskin of the Bells, Oh Come All Ye Faithful Electors, among others. <laughs> well, since we've all been going um, pretty bonkers under quarantine, people are trying to find fun things for other people to do. So his hashtag, Ad Word Ruin a Christmas Song, um, was uh, the project that he uh, lighted on. Oh Holy Night terrors it came crashing upon a midnight clear um little metal drummer boy carol channing of the bells walking in a nuclear winter wonderland 12 days of quarantine christmas uh jingle bells palsy carol baskin and the bells blue bell blue balls um Christmas, Nate Silver, and it goes on from there. I'll be homeschooled for Christmas. That was one of my favorites. That is it's good. the most quarantine. <laughs> it's the most quarantined time of the year. You're a mean one, Mr. Trump. I'll be home for COVID Christmas. I think I mentioned that one uh, already. But anyway, kind of. Oh, there's Walken, as in Christopher Walken. Walken in a Christmas or Winter Wonderland was another of the uh, of the suggestions. Something to do. In quarantine. Yeah, I mean, just sitting here, I just came up with a joint Mayhart of the world. So, I mean, you know. (laughs) 
Wow. Talk about ruining a song. <laughs> I don't even want to really give much uh, thought yeah. to that. Well, no. a, a Romanian cobbler. Yeah, they still have cobblers in Romania uh, who made giant shoes to help keep people apart during the uh, first wave of COVID-19 has come up with a new line of huge winter boots to stamp out the second onslaught of the disease. He actually made boots that had a, a six foot length to them so that you could be measured in how far you were from people around you. Now from side to side, that's a different story, but in front of you, you would know with certainty that you were six feet apart from uh, the person or persons in front of you. Well, he's come up with these size 75 winter boots to stamp out COVID-19. People are coming up with creative ideas to try to protect themselves and others. You know, you had to figure he was going to follow up turning the puppet into a little boy into some way, but this is not what I saw coming at all. (laughs) Well, he started making them when he noticed people were standing too close together and ignoring social distancing rules. Two people facing each other in his elongated footwear would be forced to stand just under two meters apart. On top of regular orders, he said he also got calls from performers, including a Belgium dance group and a U.S. rock band and a number of other people who just had very big feet. So this has been very good for the Romanian cobbler, who apparently works in isolation and is able to produce what he produces for people who are very concerned about staying away from one another. I now have this mental image of Pinocchio social distancing himself by lying a lot. <laughs> well, the nose would have done it. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, the nose would have done it. And so now we understand the motive behind it. It was simply a way of protecting himself from any potential pandemic that might come up. Uh, he during he was time. ahead of his time. He was ahead of his time. Well, only trained dogs qualified as service animals on U.S. airlines as regulators rejected requests to extend legal protections to miniature horses, monkeys, and other species under a final U.S. Transportation Department rule was issued. Only trained support animals will be permitted on airlines. That's what the uh, U.S. airlines have now called. No more um, peacocks, no more miniature horses, nothing but a trained service dog. Well, travelers wearing protective face masks to prevent the spread of the coronavirus go through security before boarding a flight at an air at virtually any airport. And airlines can still choose which other species to allow on board. But the rules issued on Wednesday largely resolve years of disputes with passengers who falsely claim pets are emotional support animals, which may travel in the cabin with little oversight. Well, under existing rules, airlines were required to recognize, with limited exceptions, emotional support animals as service animals. Now they can classify them as pets, not allowed in the cabin. Well, legally protected service animals are now limited to dogs trained to do um, uh, tasks for a person who may be visually impaired or have psychiatric or other disabilities. That um, the airlines do not have to allow emotional support animals. Animals charges uh, charge rather as much as or airlines charge as much as one hundred and seventy five dollars to transport pets. A good reason to claim pets as emotional support animals to try to avoid uh, paying that fee. As recently as twenty seventeen, the U.S. carried uh, carriers transported seven hundred and fifty one thousand animals. Species such as horses and cats, um, monkeys uh, will not get service animal status for U.S. regulators, but airlines can recognize them as service animals if they choose. So they now have some 
uh, flexibility, they can still not refuse a service animal based solely on the breed or the generalized physical type of animal. So the rules have changed. James, uh, my producer, is really my um, emotional support animal. So I, I think you're probably still cleared. Yet you never travel with me. What's up with that? Yeah, well. You never, you go all these exciting places over the years. I mean, you know, you've been to China, you've been to, you know, all the corners of the world. And uh, I'm always stuck here in Portland while you're cruising away in Alaska or something. Uh, and I'm stuck here with my emotional support seahorse in a jar. <laughs> Well, that's the way it uh, that's the way it goes. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle, KGNW eight twenty. The Word, taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news. I'm Georgine Rice, along with my producer James Blend, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon. We're taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news. We're also joined by live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word, for the next couple of days. So glad to have you along for the ride. Well, a nearly 60-foot-high nativity scene in Spain earned two Guinness World Records as the tallest and largest nativity scene in the world. Well, the scene was installed um, in a plaza in Spain. It was examined virtually by a Guinness adjudicator who determined it was the world's tallest nativity scene as well as the largest in the uh, in the area well the scene consists of a 59 foot tall statue of joseph with a smaller figurine of mary and baby jesus the previous record holder for the tallest nativity scene was a mexican display that measured about 17 feet high at its highest point this one 60 feet high so considerably taller than the other i wonder what the purpose of that kind of gargantuan display might be. Uh, is it just to break a record or is it some other motivation? I mean, obviously, you'd hope there would be some giant profession of faith. It's like, I, I love what happened <laughs> yeah, so much really. that day. I want to shout it from the rooftops, almost literally. Uh, it kind of reminds me of a reverse problem that we had uh, when we first moved into the current house we live in a couple of years ago. Uh, my wife wanted to get a, uh, a, a nativity for the lawn as part of our Christmas decorations. And uh, she came and told me what the measurements were, what the price was. I thought that was a reasonable price for the size of what she wanted. There was just one slight problem. She mistook uh, the little symbols for inches for her feet. So we wound <laughs> up with a uh, eight-inch tall, 24-inch across nativity scene. <laughs> Our water sprinkler was bigger. <laughs> mistakes that, happen <laughs> there's no mistaking this one though 60 feet it, i think it's it's going to be seen and it <laughs> very quickly hilarious. was it was very quickly adopted by our daughter who uses it as, her, as part of her <laughs> christmas decorations but oh that's oh, hilarious it's like you, you told me it was six foot by 24 foot or eight foot by 24 say, I, I don't know i like yet yeah, no those are inches not feet they, it's not their mistake. Not, that, yeah, oh, that's you, hilarious. So maybe that's, that's the problem. Maybe they meant to order it in inches. That could be the case. That and it could showed be the up case. in feet. Well, speaking of record-breaking, more than 150 people in Santa suits boarded jet skis in Australia to attempt a Guinness World Record and raise money for charity. The organizers of the record attempt 
The Narang River in Queensland said a total of 156 people dressed up as Santa Claus, rode jet skis to break the record and raise money for Christmas presents for kids in care. It's a charity that distributes toys to kids in foster care. Well, the organizer said they bested the previous record of 129 Santas on jet skis. Australia previously set the Guinness World Record for the largest surfing lessons ever, with 320 people in Santa Claus costumes receiving instructions on how to uh, shred the waves. So I guess people are always looking for ways to come up with a way to break a record that's fairly meaningless. Oh, well. Well, a kitchen supply company announced that it's seeking a cookie connoisseur who will be paid $5,000 to create unique cookie recipes with wacky ingredients. And on this uh, National Cookie Day, I think this might be uh, something to consider, Reynolds Kitchens said that the cookie connoisseur will be tapped to author five cookie recipes to be featured in the brand's 21-day cookie countdown in 2021. Bakers interested in the position, which comes with a $5,000 paycheck, are being asked to submit a cookie recipe that includes an unexpected or wacky ingredient by the 8th of December. That's coming up, by the way. Well, entries emailed to, to careers at reynoldssweetgig.com should include the recipe, a photo of the resulting cookie, and a 250-word description of why they would be the perfect uh, candidate for the job. Applicants should also include their names, their ages, addresses. The holidays may be filled with some uncertainty this year, they say, but baking cookies always brings joy. That's Lisa Smith. She's the Senior Vice President of Marketing for Reynolds Brands. Uh, we're looking for the fun-loving baker to help us end this challenging year on a sweet note with a creative cookie countdown. Very fitting on this National Cookie Day. Well, a Japanese entertainment complex is dedicated uh, to classic anime series, uh, Mobile Suit Gundam. Are you familiar with this, James? Because this I am is not. way out of my... Yeah. Anyway, they've unveiled its star attraction. It's a 59-foot-high robot statue that can move its arms and legs and head. It looks like it's made out of Legos. It's really quite impressive. It's nearly 60 feet tall, and it, of course, has um, been a, a Guinness book, uh, book of Records um, attempted uh, a holder. The Gundam Factory in Yokohama Entertainment Complex showed off the abilities of the 20-ton full-scale replica of the RX-78 Gundam from the animated series, the giant robot can move its arms, its legs, its head to strike different poses. The complex said that uh, they're going to change the pose every half hour once the attraction is open to the public. Wow, open to the public. Remember when things were open to the public and we could just saunter in and roam around and hit shoulders with other people and, you know, stand within two, three feet of each other? I long yes. for those days. Anyway, the factory had been scheduled to open its doors in October, but, of course, the opening was delayed. They're going to try to do it on the 19th out of the safety concerns related to COVID-19, but that may be um, delayed again. We'll just have to wait and see. But 59-foot high robot. Pretty impressive. Are we sure they didn't mean to get 59 inches? <laughs> well, well, there you go. There you go. Well, you know, Brexit, there are some decisions that are yet to be made, and they came up with in this process what they're calling the Brexit Monster. It's a furry blue mascot created by the Netherlands to personify problems linked with Britain's uh, EU departure, made an appearance at the port of Rotterdam on Tuesday to warn that customers' control uh, controls are coming on January 1st. 
Um, deal or no deal is for the port operations, not relevant, says the uh, port's Brexit coordinator. From that date on, uh, on, all customers' formalities and veterinary formalities uh, have to be in place. And they're apparently making the point of all of this. Well, the Brexit monster is the uh, far from scary um, creature, merely a man dressed up in a blue furry costume with the same fur on his arms and shoes who is rolled out from time to time to remind people about the serious side of Brexit. I don't know. It just seems to me if you wanted to remind people of the serious side of Brexit, a blue furry creature might not be the best way to do that. Well, the Netherlands is one of Britain's closest trading partners. They brought out the Brexit monster this time due to concerns the coronavirus pandemic has reduced awareness around Britain's departure. It's going to happen, and the rollout uh, is uh, scheduled, but it's just uh, being hindered or hampered in some ways because of the coronavirus um, pandemic. So the Brexit monster, kind of an odd creative way to make the point. Well, a Belgian restaurant has found a way to keep orders rolling uh, during the lockdown by serving its seafood to customers in camper vans. So they actually have these luxury camper vans in which they set up beautiful tables and people actually go in and have a dinner in a location other than their own dining uh, room that people can rent the vehicle or bring their own, uh, park it outside the Matthias and C restaurant and wait for masked staff to bring the food over from their kitchen. So you are in the safety of the camper van, either they have provided or your own. Now, you had a birthday in your family just in the last few days. Mm-hmm. This might have been a nice option to eat someplace other than at the, uh, the dining table in your home. Very much so. I'm all for options at this point since, uh, you know, takeout has been the birthday meal of all year pretty much. Yeah, I think for a lot of people. I, I uh, always vowed that I would never have my meal um, delivered to the house. I was concerned about the people transporting the meal. I've read stories of people abusing the meal, drinking the drink, taking some of the fries and that sort of thing. I've now been reduced to, yeah, absolutely, I'm calling one of these uh, – uh, these vendors to bring food from a favorite restaurant because it's just been much longer than I ever anticipated. Uh, Meals on Wheels in a Camper, that's a whole nother twist that I haven't yet seen in this area. Hey, you're listening to The Georgian Rice Show. I'm also sitting in for Live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. In the second hour, we'll have an opportunity to share our interview of the week with John Chastine. Half the battle, healing your hidden hurts. News and traffic, up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next two segments, we'll share our interview of the week with John Chastine, Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. Oregon Governor Kate Brown announced today that 2,176 new confirmed or presumptive cases of coronavirus had been identified in the state and 30 more people had died Both record highs as the number of fatalities surpassed 1,000. I appreciate a word that uh, James Blend applied to the number of fatalities, the word laundered. Um, The question is, we get the impression that in the last day there have been 30 fatalities, when in fact it may mean that there were five fatalities today or in the last day, and the rest were spread out over a longer period of time. But looking at uh, the governor's report, she announced Friday that the 2,100 new confirmed or presumptive cases had been identified. She said, when I think about that, I'm just horrified. We are on the brink of a full-blown crisis. Well, the previous record high for a daily uh, number of cases was 1669. 
Uh, that was uh, less than a week ago. The previous record for deaths reported on a single day was 24. Now, again, deaths reported on a single day. Is that what the 30 represents or does it represent, as was the case yesterday, uh, spread out over several days? Well, the governor spoke at the state released new modeling, uh, which showed that in a best case scenario, Oregon would see an average of 2000 confirmed cases per day by Christmas Eve. And the spread of the virus, as it accelerates, the number could climb to as many as 2,700 cases. The governor said she was thankful for the uh, uh, Oregonians who have uh, who have complied with the travel and gathering size restrictions, as well as those who have embraced common sense measures to slow the spread. But with a vaccine still likely months away from widespread distribution, she said now is not the time for Oregonians to let their guards down. Uh, we are not out of the crisis yet, she said. I know it's hard to imagine. But in fact, our hardest days are still ahead. Again, the numbers released for Oregon uh, today, 2,176. And note that they say that these are coronavirus cases and presumptive cases. So that number could be dramatically higher or lower. We don't know. The same is true for fatalities. Is that a laundered uh, number of fatalities, which means it represents not just deaths in a single day, but from a number of days, it's not altogether clear. Well, again, returning to some of the national news headlines, the Associated Press used the story to uh, bludgeon the president that the presumptive president-elect Biden is calling for a 100-day of um, period of wearing masks. The Democrat adoring AP claims the move marks a notable shift from President Trump, whose own skepticism of mask wearing has contributed to the politicization of the issue. Well, that's made many people reticent to embrace the practice that public health experts say is one of the easiest ways to manage the pandemic, which is killed more than 275,000 Americans, they reported. Part of the problem is we're getting competing experts saying just the opposite. Well, Michael Barone says that Democrats started this election mess by refusing to accept Trump in 2016. And he concludes with this. Democrats who are dismayed that many people aren't meekly accepting the legitimacy of Biden presidency are in the process of learning a lesson taught very long time ago. You reap what you sow. And progressives have morphed into becoming what they once loathed. Victor Davis Hanson writes that a half a century ago, progressives used to push limitless free expression, blasting conservatives for their allegedly uh, blinkered traditionalism. They boasted of obliterating once normal boundaries in art, music and literature to allow nudity, profanity, sexuality and anti-American boilerplate. Now the left is Victorian, increasingly puritanical, regressive and hypersensitive. Even totalitarian censorship and book burning have weirdly become part of their by any means necessary method. The Department of Justice has filed a discrimination lawsuit against Facebook. The lawsuit, which is based on a two-year investigation into the company, alleges that Facebook intentionally created a hiring system in which it denied qualified U.S. workers a fair opportunity to learn about and apply for jobs that Facebook instead sought to channel to temporary visa holders Facebook wanted to sponsor for green cards. And an NFL announcer has apologized for his uh, sexist comments perceived during a broadcast uh, from the New York Post. Chris Collingsworth is facing backlash for saying he was blown away by some women's knowledge of football during Wednesday afternoon's broadcast of the Steelers Ravens game. For this, he was harassed and issued an apology. Well, the Wisconsin Supreme Court has refused to hear the Trump campaign's legal challenge and ousted House Democrats are warning the party against moving too far left. Well, Biden is set to push a job killing minimum wage hike and Maxine Waters campaign paid her daughter about two hundred and forty 
thousand dollars over 2019-20, the election cycle. Apparently, this is the Democrat modus operandi. Ilhan Omar has paid her husband's firm millions. Well, the Senate's very narrowly confirmed Christopher Waller to serve on the federal board. And Biden uh, is calling for um, uh, more masks in a memo um, and in a memo to Biden. Most Americans already wear masks and have been doing so for most of 2020. Governor Gavin French Laundry Restaurant Newsom has introduced a new stay at home order while L.A. County uh, deputies say that they won't enforce Newsom's new rules. Well, a 102-year-old New Yorker who also lived through the 1918 flu pandemic and is a cancer survivor beats COVID twice. More than 1,000 visiting researchers affiliated with the Chinese military fled the U.S. this summer. And the U.S. has imposed severe travel restrictions on Chinese Communist Party members. The restrictions target holders of business B-1 and tourist B-2 visas, reducing the travel document's maximum validity to one month, down from the current maximum of 10 years. The Chinese Communist Party has more than 90 million members, effectively making the State Department visa action the Trump administration's most sweeping and direct attack on the party. Well, Chicago sees a massive spike in police targeted shootings, and if you've ever wondered what your pri- your privilege marginalization score is, there's actually a worksheet for that. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been roasted for selling tax the rich sweatshirts for $58 based on her ideology, shouldn't this be free? In any case, in any case, uh, Jim Tretcher, he makes a great point. AOC is never going to make a shirt that Uh, that uh, folks who oppose her uh, would support because nobody ever became powerful by leaving people alone. But hey, the price could be worse. At least it's nowhere near the $10,000 it cost for a can of tax the rich caviar. The Department of Transportation has cracked down on the type of emotional support animals allowed on planes. Finally, at least for those who are frightened of some animals, As the article states, the new rules uh, will put an end to what has become the widely abused loophole, allowing passengers to bring a wide array of different uh, creatures aboard, including peacocks, pigs and snakes. Wow. A poor Amazon driver uh, got chased off by hens and lived to tell the tale. And a Jurassic gator devoured a hunter's ducks before they could be retrieved. Well, 1619, on this day in history, a group of settlers from Bristol, England, arrived at Berkeley 100 um, in present-day Charles City County, Virginia, where they held a service thanking God for their safe arrival. 1783, General George Washington bids farewell to his Continental Army officers uh, in New York. And 1867, the National Grange of the Order of Patrons of Husbandry, also known as the Grange, is founded in Washington, D.C. to promote the interests of farmers. 1945, on this day in history, the Senate approves U.S. participation in the United Nations by a vote of 65 to 7. And on 1965, this day in history, the United States launches Gemini 7 with Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Frank Borman and Navy Commander James Lovell aboard on a two-week mission. While Gemini 7 is in orbit, its sister ship, Gemini 6A, is launched on December 15th. On a one-day mission, the two spacecraft were able to rendezvous within a foot of one another. 
1978, on this day in history, San Francisco gets its first female mayor as city supervisor Diane Feinstein is named to replace the assassinated George Mascone. And finally, on this day of history, 1995, the first NATO troops land in the Balkans to begin setting up a peace mission that brings American soldiers into the middle of the Bosnian conflict. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear our interview of the week with John Chastine. Half the battle, healing your hidden hurts. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're also streaming live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. So glad to have you with us. Well, in life, there are a few things that we could uh, label as absolutes, but there is one thing that we can count on, and that's that everyone will have hurt in their life at one time or another. I wouldn't have to ask uh, and wait too long for any one of us to come up with a singular or multiple hurts. Well, in his debut book, Half the Battle, my next guest, pastor and university president, Dr. John Chastine, he looks at both Old and New Testament examples of people whom God invited to begin the healing process by confronting their secret pain. Uh, we're going to talk about um, what the half of the battle is, what the other half is with Dr. Chastine in just a moment. But again, he is the president of the King's University of South Lake, Texas. He and his wife, Michelle, also serve as the lead pastors of Victory Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. His greatest passion is to empower and equip the local church to live, move, and be in the fullness of Christ. And we are delighted to have you with us to talk about your book, Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It, it truly is an honor that that uh, you would uh, consider having me on. I'm just uh, it, I'm just thrilled to be here. Thank you. Well, you're certainly welcome. Now, the phrase "half the battle" is rather common uh, to us. It's sort of an offhand uh, comment that we often made. Mm-hmm. How are you using it as the title of this book? Half the battle implies that there's another half uh, that that it also yeah. needs to be considered, or that is taking place. Explain a little bit the title, "Half the Battle." Absolutely. Really, the the idea is that we we spend most of our lives lives looking at the battle in front of us, whether it's a financial battle, whether it's a relational battle, maybe it's a marriage or a relationship with a child or something we're trying to overcome that seems tangible. And I begin to to see that many times the battles that we face on the outside are first needing to be dealt with on the inside. And I kind of make this parallel with the children of Israel as they leave Mm -hmm. Egypt and they wander in the wilderness and they're on the banks of the river of the Jordan river. And they're about to go into the promised land and the promised land became, you know, we think that the promised land is the land flowing with milk and honey and it, and it was, but it was also a land filled with battles. And they went to fight Jericho and AI and the Northern kingdoms and the Southern kingdoms. And that was going to be their battles. But I found, um, and we can talk through it, but I found on the banks of the Jordan, that was only going to be half the battle. There was a battle on the banks of the Jordan River that God led them through that was going to be a battle on the inside. And I begin to see that many times before God helps us defeat the walls of Jericho and watch the walls of Jericho come tumbling down in our lives, he first wants to deal with the walls in our heart. And many times there's something on the inside that God wants to deal with before we defend and, and, and defeat the enemies on the outside. You point out that uh, when the children of Israel made their way across the river, they probably sighed a collective sigh of relief. Finally, we have entered into our rest. There is a battle ahead, but what happened before the battle was as significant and was preparation for what was to come uh, that's, that's difficult for it. Most of us don't want to think about 
a battle, one in particular right. that is internal. And yet God right. called them yeah. to that very thing in order for them to confront the enemy. Yeah, it, it, it really was this happened in this really pivotal verse for me where kind of this book really got birthed was in one verse in the Bible. And it was a verse reading through the Bible every year. It's a verse that I've probably read numerous times, but it never jumped off the page of me like it did this time. And it's in Joshua chapter five, verse nine. And in that verse, it says, then the Lord said to Joshua, today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so what he's saying to them is before you go to fight Jericho, um, he, they crossed the Jordan River. And just before this verse, the, the Lord tells them to circumcise themselves. Now, what a weird thing. What an odd instruction. But you have to be reminded of what circumcision was. Mm -hmm. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. So but what God was saying to them is before you go to battle on the outside, I want you to be reminded on the inside of who you are. You're a child of God. And I want you to be reminded of this. And in this verse, he says, I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So you've circumcised yourself. And now that you've circumcised yourself, and in the New Testament, we know that it's not a circumcision of the flesh. It's a circumcision of the heart. And so you begin to see this parallel of God saying, before you go to battle, I want to circumcise your heart. And immediately after circumcision, it says, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And what struck me was these people that the scriptures are, are referring to is the next generation. These people have never even stepped foot in Egypt. And yet he says, I've, re I've rolled away mm -hmm. the reproach. Now, the re reproach in, in Hebrew means shame and scorn. And so he says, before you go to battle, there's a battle on the inside of you, and you've never felt the sting of a whip on your back, but you've grown up seeing the scars on your parents' back. And so it became this generational shame that they carried of slavery. And what God was saying to them is, hey, you're not a slave anymore. You're a child of God. And I want to remind you of this by going through the rhythm of circumcision and reminding you of your covenant relationship with, with, with me. And so, so maybe the battles that we face on the inside are only half the battle. Mm -hmm. And if we keep trying to fight the battles without being reminded of who we are on the inside, then we're just going to keep fighting and banging our heads against the wall and walking around walls that never fall. I think that the reason the walls of Jericho fell without them having to raise a single weapon except their mouth was because they had fought a much bloodier battle on the inside. They allowed the process of circumcision uh, and they were reminded of who they are as children of God. And then when they faced the battles before them in the natural, God fought those battles for them because they were reminded that they were his children. One of the things you pointed out, and I really appreciate it, I thought about circumcision, the, the physical and the spiritual circumcision differently. They were in a very yeah. vulnerable position um, by yeah. by doing that. It was a very painful thing. And when we um, begin to do the work that God intends to do in us, we need to be vulnerable and it can produce pain, but there's a glory on the other side of that pain when we we act in obedience. Yeah, what a, what a bizarre analogy. You know, as a pastor, <laughs> I think, man, that's not really easy to preach about God, to get up on a platform and talk about circumcision and go there. And, and it's an awkward thing to talk about, but really when you think about it, it's one of the most beautiful symbolisms you could ever imagine. Because imagine with me grown men <laughs> walking up to Joshua for circumcision. You talk about an awkward moment, but, you, but what that is, is it was a moment of vulnerability. 
it was a moment of, of me having to be vulnerable with myself and, you know, pardon the, the bluntness of this, but they had to expose themselves, right? It was painful. It wasn't comfortable. But this is the same process when we allow God to circumcise our hearts. We have to be vulnerable to someone else. We have to expose the painful position of our hearts. It's, it hurts. It's, it's sensitive. We don't want to do it. And so really, as awkward as, of an, as, a, as an analogy as it is, it's actually a really, really beautiful picture of the circumcision of the heart and the process God takes us through to do that. Our natural tendency is to want to bury the very things that are most painful to us, that God wants to expose in order that there might be healing. Your next chapter really focuses on this this idea of burying things that, uh, you know, they, they decay, they decompose. <laughs> there, there's... Uh, there's yes, a problem yes. with allowing things to fester. Yes, that's exactly what happens. And really a big chapter that I deal with of what we do with it, the it, what is the it? I kind of go through the process of, of boiling down, so to speak, a lot of the pains and hurts that we have really boils down many times to rejection. And this idea that um, someone who should have loved us rejected us and someone who should have protected me, a father or a mother or a boss, somebody that was there to be my protector actually ended up abusing me. And so we end up being, we end up experiencing rejection and we, we have options of what we can do with this rejection. And, and that's what you're referring to is these things that we can do. We can, we can bury it. We can just shove it down deep, but really I did some some research on rejection, even scientific research that was done um, by, by a doctor named Dr. Winch where he did these MRI studies where he would take MRI, MRI pictures of the brain, scans of the brain, while rejection was happening, both physical pain and emotional pain, rejection. And what he concluded was that rejection and physical pain, they share the same neuropathways in the brain. And so the conclusion of his research was that as far as the brain is concerned, a broken heart may not be so different than a broken arm. And so our brain processes rejection as physical pain. And so it can become this wound that gets infected, you know, and, and we, we have things that we do with rejection because many times the pain is just too far. It just hurts too bad. The rejection, the abuse, the, the, the things that we walk through in life, that many times what we do is we hide it away. We're just like, I'm going to stick this in a dark place and just kind of pretend like it's not there. But the problem with that is it doesn't get smaller. It actually gets bigger. And everybody in your world is tripping over it. Everybody, all of your friends can tell you not to mention that name or my friend is going to get really mad because you've hid it, you've hid it away. Or you can pass it off. This is what we see a lot of people do with their pain. They pass it off. They, they don't want to deal with it. So it's everybody else's fault. It's your fault that I'm a bad person. It's your fault that I abuse drugs. It's your fault that I cheated on you. And so we, we blame other people. So we, we, we can do that. Or we just carry it along. We're like, you know what? This is my burden to bear. I'm just going to suck it up. right? I'm just going to suck it up and, and just carry this bitterness. And it becomes a grudge. But the problem with the grudge is that your grudge will grow up. <laughs> and That's it'll right. change your marriage. It'll, it'll, it'll change your personality. It'll change your parenting style. It'll change your, your, your financial habits. And it'll change everything about you. And really the only option that I found in the book is that we lay it down. It's really the only option. And the, the, the beauty of this, that God, that God showed me in the writing this book 
was going back uh, to that verse in Psalm 118 and Psalm 118 and, and other t- and other t- times through scripture is talking about Jesus. And it says that Jesus became, and he says that he was the stone that the builders rejected. Mm. Now that same word is used rejected. Jesus was rejected. And, but then it goes on to say that that has now become the chief cornerstone. So you think about rejection, something that was meant to be harmful and abusive and painful and hurtful, actually became foundational. It became the very thing that our faith is built upon. Because in, in Ephesians, it says that that stone became the cornerstone of the church, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in Psalm 118, it says that that cornerstone is actually rejection. And so if we'll do what Jesus did, Jesus knew rejection better than anybody. Jesus was rejected by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees. He was rejected by the Greeks. He was rejected by the Romans. He was rejected by the Jews. He was rejected by his own disciples. Um, He was rejected as he hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he took rejection and built something beautiful out of it. And I just begin to see this picture of what if we didn't hide our pain? What if we didn't pass it off? What if we didn't um, tuck it away or carry it along? What if we laid it down and said, God, I don't know how you're going to turn this into beauty, but I believe that you can turn beauty into ashes into beauty and my morning into joy and just allow God to build something beautiful out of it. Mm. We're talking with uh, pastor and author John Chastine, his book, Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. We're continuing a conversation with pastor and author John Chastine. He is the author of Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts, an excellent book to help us consider how God wants to deal with those things that we would just as soon keep uh, buried. Uh, in the book, you uh, you write about when there's rejection, um, that there's restoration and redemption that God offers us. What do we do with that rejection when we get to the point you mentioned laying it down? What do we do with that yeah. in order to begin that, to experience that healing process that God always intends for his children? Yeah, I begin to see this really, this other picture in the New Testament that gives this beautiful picture of what to do with rejection. Um, and the Lord led me to, to John chapter 11, where um, Mary and Martha were rejected, in essence. Their brother Lazarus had died. They sent word to Jesus, who's their friend, by the way. It was Lazarus' Lazarus's friend. And they thought to themselves, surely if anybody can come and heal, Jesus, heal Lazarus, it would be his friend, Jesus. We've seen Jesus heal people, and we know what happened. Jesus sent word back, and, said, and, and well, he didn't send word back. He just told his disciples, no, we're not going. You know, we're not going. We're, we're going to stay where we're at, and we'll go, go there soon. Four days later, he shows up. And they, so he rejects them. He says, no, I'm, I'm going to reject your request. And, and they let us know, you know, what they felt about that. It says that Martha came out to meet Jesus. And I can picture her with her hand on her hip, you know. And she says, Jesus, you should have been here. And she is telling Jesus her disappointment. You rejected me. You should have been here. And you can, you can feel the pain in her as you read the scriptures on it. And, and we can feel like that sometimes. 
when when we feel rejected, we when we were raped, when we were abused, when we lost our job, when we filed for bankruptcy, we want to yell at Jesus and say, Jesus, you should have been here. And why weren't you there? If you would have been here, I wouldn't have gotten a divorce. If you were there, I wouldn't have gotten abused. But I love how she quickly pivots and she goes from blaming to the very next sentence. She says, but even now, and that's a really important phrase that we all make the transition in our mind when we feel rejected and abused by Jesus. We say, but even now, even now you can do something about this. And Jesus says to them very, very, very calmly, he says, take me, take me to him. So what Jesus does to us in our pain is he invites us to take him to that place of pain. Because what Mary and Martha did with their pain, Lazarus, is the same thing we do with our pain. We shove it in a dark place and we roll a stone in front of it. And this is exactly what they did with their pain. And it was a beautiful analogy in in a physical picture of a spiritual truth. That's what I like to call it. It's a physical picture of them taking something that had died, something that was decaying, something that they once loved, something that hurt, and they put it in a cave, they put it in a tomb, and they rolled a stone in front of it for to just let it fester, to just let it decay. And this is what we do with our pain. And it becomes, it's one of the chapters in the book, it becomes the stench behind the stone. Mm-hmm. And we all have one. That's the thing is none of us are immune to this. We all have something that if we allow it to, it'll fester. It becomes the stench behind the stone. And Jesus says, take me to that place. And so Jesus is a gentleman, you know, he knows where your pain is at and he knew where Lazarus was at. He didn't have to ask them, but he said, take me there. And if we're willing, and this is what Mary and Martha did, they escorted Jesus to their place of pain. And what Jesus was saying was, take me to the place that you gave up, you know, take me to the place that you lost hope. And we have to escort Jesus to that place. And when we get there and, you know, we know one of the shortest verses in the Bible is Jesus wept. And so what that shows us is that Jesus comes to weep alongside you. He, he, he knows your pain and he knows what you're going through. And so they get to this place of pain and Jesus says, roll the stone aside. And we know their response. Martha said, oh, Jesus, by now the stench has become horrible is the way she puts it. And because it was the stench, there was the stench behind the stone. And so, so Jesus asks them, and this is a really important part of our healing, Jesus asked them to roll the stone aside. Now, this is also interesting because just a short time later, Jesus would roll his own stone to the side. Jesus did not need their help to move this stone. He could have pointed his finger at it and moved it by himself. But for some reason, Jesus always involves us in our own healing. And there's something that we have to move, something that's heavy, something that is terrifying, something that's painful. It's talking to somebody, it's, it's going to a counselor, it's going to a pastor, it's, it's accessing that place of pain that's going to stink really bad as soon as you move the stone. And what, what Jesus is saying is, if you'll do what you can do, I'll do what you can't do. So you can move the stone. You can't resurrect the dead body. I'll do that. But you can sure move the stone out of the way. And if you'll show me your faith by moving the stone, then I'll resurrect something in you that has already died. And so Jesus involves us in this process of healing. He wants, he wants us to, to, to help the process of walking through this healing journey. We're talking about the book, Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. My guest is uh, Pastor Dr. John Chastine. I think for many of us, we want to be 
um, movers and shakers in the kingdom of God. We want to uh, to take ground for the kingdom. And yet before that happens, as we've been discussing, God requires some internal work in us. Um, talk a little bit about the necessity of resolving these issues, bringing them before God, allowing him to restore and redeem us uh, in order that we might move forward and take uh, take the ground that he intends for us. Going back to your analogy from uh, the Israelites taking Jericho, they didn't wield weapons. They simply yeah. raised their voices and the walls tumbled yeah. because they had done done something that God required of them prior to uh, approaching the city. Yeah, I think I think as, as Christ followers, that's really our duty on earth, right, is to take ground from the enemy, to take ground from the enemy for my kids to take ground from the enemy for my spouse, to take ground for the enemy for financially, to take ground from the enemy for my city, for my neighborhood, for my church. And and every day that looks different in how we walk that out. And in, in the book I go into a little bit, I love history. And I talk a little bit about World War One. And the World War One became known as the, the war from the trenches. It's where the, 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 the term trench warfare was even invented. Because what happened is that they, they were trying to take ground and they ended up facing weapons they had never faced. They, it was the first war where machine guns were introduced. It was the first war where gas was introduced and warfare in, in, in chemicals was introduced. It was the first tank. It was the first war where tanks were there. And so what happened is they faced weaponry they had never faced before and they didn't know what to do. So what they do? They dug a trench and they stayed in it. And as soon as they dug a trench, they stopped advancing. They stopped taking ground. And I think that many Christians are, are at this place where we face enemies we've never faced before. We, we have wounds. We, we've become wounded. We can't take ground anymore. And so we dig a trench and we just stay. But what they didn't realize is that whenever they dug those trenches, instead of being exposed to death quickly, they were actually just exposing themselves to death in a different way. Mm-hmm. And this is where th- this is where a term we all are, have heard of, trench foot, was invented because the trenches were disgusting. They were covered with feces and rats, and infestations and disease, and so they were dying a slow death, and they didn't even know they were dying. And I think that there's a lot of Christ followers out there that. We've become complacent. We've dug trenches to protect ourselves, and we're dying a slow death, and we don't even realize we're dying. And we've stopped taking ground from the enemy, for the, from the, cap, the capital C church in many ways. We've just stopped fighting. Um, we've become more concerned about ourselves than the army that we fight for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's such an important thing that we become uh, way more obsessed with advancing the kingdom of God than we are advancing our own kingdoms. And, and that can even be a slippery slope uh, for pastors because pastors can, can uh, take the bait of advancing um, their own church more than they advance the kingdom or advancing my own name and my own platform more than I'm advancing the kingdom. And, you know, second Corinthians, second Chronicles chapter 20 is that battle of Jehoshaphat and he, and they go to face the enemy, and, he, and the Bible says that he sends the worshipers out in front. Yes, um, that's crazy. That's crazy. Like, <laughs> can you imagine being the worshiper? Like, okay, you get in the front. We're going to go to battle. There's the enemy. We're going to start. Waiting. I would be thinking, okay, where's my sword? And Jehoshaphat's like, no, you don't get a sword. You just use your mouth. And um, they took ground from the enemy by just worshiping. And and. Um, Maybe the sharpest weapon we have is our tongue. You know, maybe 
maybe the tip of the spear is the tip of our tongue. And are we, are we advancing? Are we, are we taking ground from the enemy? Are we praying? Are we fasting? Are we worshiping? Are we doing the, the things uh, in the supernatural? And I think in a world we've become so obsessed with the natural and all the things around us and the injustice and the, the politics and the presidential election and all of the tension and all of those things are vitally important. But, but I'm convinced that an hour on my knees is more powerful than an hour on Facebook ranting. That's right. Um, and so we just need to learn how to fight differently. Um, we, we've lost the art of spiritual warfare uh, in so many ways. So that's, sorry, I got on a soapbox there for a minute. But that's just, <laughs> I think it's, I think we got to get back to the roots of who we are as Christ followers. Absolutely. We were called to take, to take ground from the enemy. Well, I wish we had more time, but we don't. The book, once again, is titled Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. And I should mention that the appendix includes a leader's guide and a study guide that is absolutely worth taking on. Um, Pastor Chastine, thank you so much for talking with us today. I thoroughly enjoyed the book and recommend it to our leaders, our listeners, rather, uh, published by Gateway. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It was an honor. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Oregon is working toward launching a statewide COVID exposure notification app uh, coming in January. Now, I announced earlier this week that in the state of Washington, Governor Inslee already announced a similar program. But in January, we can expect it in Oregon. Well, much like the app launched there. Um, Oregon's smartphone-based system was developed by Google and Apple, and it's going to use Bluetooth to send users notifications if they've been exposed to COVID-19. Now, users will manually input if they have tested positive, and this information is sent to all possible contacts without collecting or sharing any personal information or location data. It would have to collect the location data for the information to be sent out, but they don't make that known to others. People with iPhones will be able to enable the exposure notifications feature that's already in their phone settings, while Android users will download a separate app. Participation in the system will be entirely voluntary. Well, the system is currently being tested in a pilot program at Oregon State University, Corvallis, and Bend campuses. And as of Monday, November 30th, more than 9,000 members of the OSU community are enrolled in that notification app. Now, this is up from 6,500 uh, the previous week. Steve Clark, who's the vice president of university relations and marketing at OSU, said that initially some community members were skeptical of the system because of privacy concerns. Well, the university worked to reassure the community that the system doesn't share or collect personal information. And now um, uh, participant numbers are growing daily. Folks are uh, looking uh, for something to do. And this provides a sense of information that they uh, personally don't have at this point. Well, the program started uh, earlier last month and is expected to last four to six weeks until early to mid-December. There's still some uh, no concrete date for the end of the pilot, uh, the IT director at the Oregon Health Authority said. Uh, she also said that the system was very effective at sending exposure notifications while in a testing phase, but thus far no OSU um, community member has shared a COVID-19 positive diagnosis on the app that anonymously notified users of a possible exposure. So if you are interested in that kind of contact tracing, if you will, on a mobile app, that's going to be available, they tell us, sometime very likely in January of this year. Now, speaking of OSU, and I've been reluctant to make mention of it. I know you can't refer to it now as the Civil War game. I'm not sure what the new moniker is, but 
to my thinking, it's a civil war game between the Oregon Ducks, my alma mater, and that other team that's somewhere in Oregon as well. By some unnatural fluke, in a year of anomalies, OSU managed to, uh, to outflank and beat the Oregon Ducks. Now, again, I want to point out, this was in the context of a global pandemic where things as they should be are no longer permitted. It was in the context of everything, the world essentially being turled up, turned upside down, that Oregon State, the Beavers, managed somehow to beat the Oregon Ducks. Somehow, in this most unusual year of the 21st century, the Beavers managed somehow to beat the Ducks. Keep that in mind if you're celebrating or mourning uh, the outcome of that game. It's taken me this long to be able to speak about it publicly without weeping, so I just wanted to take this opportunity to say a little something. Well, we are out of time. I am um, glad that you joined us today. I want to take a moment and thank James Blend, our producer, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and you for making the Georgine Rice Show that we've shared with KGNW this and parts of next week part of your day. Have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday. I hope you'll join us. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.